How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So we'll start with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're in fellowship and ready to focus on God's word and to be uh, strengthened and encouraged as God the Holy Spirit teaches us his word. And then uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that as we study your word, we recognize that you are indeed the God of the universe, the one who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and that you as the creator have made everything the way it is and designed it to operate within the system of the universe the way it is and that each thing is what it is because you have defined it as such. And Father, as... We study your word, we come to understand reality as you have created it. This orients us to reality, but it also disorients us from the blind uh, cosmic system that seeks to redefine everything on its own terms. This, This conflict is frequently the source of adversity, suffering, difficulty in our own lives, and it's often a source of temptation to simply compromise and bail out on the Christian life. This is the problem the Hebrew Christians faced, a problem we all face to one degree or another every day. Father, we pray that as we continue to study in Hebrews that we would recognize the seriousness of the bailout problem and its consequences and that we would be strengthened from your word to continue steadfast, persevere in our dedication to your word and its application in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26, we come to a uh, problem passage. We come to this uh, warning passage that comes at the end of each of these teaching sessions. And the result of this is that uh, we have a difficult, difficult passage because there are some that go to these passages, especially Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 as indicators that we can lose our salvation or that a person's salvation is really indicated and evidenced by their perseverance in terms of some sort of external uh, standard or external pattern of spirituality or spiritual life or something of that nature. We've all fallen into that trap at some time or another. We'll look at somebody and we'll say, well, how can that person be a Christian? Or could that person, that person can't be a Christian, just look at their life. And they can be a believer. And they can be a rebellious, disobedient believer. And a rebellious, disobedient, ignorant believer from the time that they are first saved. And they just never ever get past that. So we have to recognize that grace means that all you need to do to be saved is to believe Jesus died for your sins. That is it. And when we understand what sin is, and when we really understand what Jesus' death accomplished in terms of the fact that it was completed, it finished, John says that, and when it was completed in John 19, and then two verses later, Jesus uses the same form of that verb, uh, teleao, and he says, It is finished. It's a perfect tense form that indicates the absolute completedness of what Jesus did on the cross, that there's nothing subsequent to it that is there to take care of sin, that what Jesus did, did everything. Jesus paid it all. That's as the hymn writer entitled his hymn. Jesus paid it all, and that means we don't do anything. That's the same message that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing in Hebrews 10, is when he makes this statement that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, that's what he is saying, is that that sacrifice of Christ was sufficient and completed And it was once for all. And as we go through uh, Hebrews chapter 10, there are these uh, statements 
which are made, such as in Hebrews 10.10, by that will we have been sanctified, then that is positional sanctification, through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Hopox in the Greek indicating it's a one-time, completed, finished work. And everything else that the writer of Hebrews is saying in this passage is just bringing to our attention the implications of that that completed act that it's over with. And it's in contrast to the fact that the verse 11 of the chapter says that the priest stood ministering daily. That's the contrast. In the Old Testament system, under the Old Covenant, it was continual, daily, repetitive. There always had to be another sacrifice because none of those sacrifices really dealt with the problem of sin. But what Jesus did on the cross truly, actually, finally ended it, and there remains no more sacrifice. And that's the emphasis at verse 11, that no more sacrifice uh, exists. Or, excuse me, verse 18. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. That's a good thing. Now, the reason I'm reminding you of that is because That's the same statement that's made at the end of verse 26, as we'll see in just a minute. And it is that, the failure to really comprehend that, that causes a a problem in understanding, interpreting these particular passages. So, let's just look at our verses coming up, verses 26 to 29. The writer of Hebrews says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. That's pretty strong language in verse 29, so we'll have to take a little time there. Now, the first thing we have to do is understand what I was uh, pointing out last time. And let me skip ahead. I think I put the slide in the, in the wrong position here. Here we go. And this was this hermeneutical principle that I call the Sherlock Holmes principle of hermeneutics. I just love reading Sherlock Holmes. Any kind of mystery, whether it's Agatha Christie or whether it is uh, Dorothy L. Sayers and uh, uh, her Lord Peter Whimsey uh, novels or whether it's uh, any... Any of the other classic mysteries that you can you can get and read, where there's all kinds of clues peppered throughout the narrative, except for the key clue that the detective observes, and somehow that's the key that unpacks and organizes all of the other information. Well, that's the same thing that happens when a student of the scriptures is studying the Bible because what a, t- a detective is doing is basically the same things that anybody does in, in Bible study or any other kind of study. First of all, there's observation, and that is just looking at all the data, all the facts, all the information. What do the words mean? What does the grammar indicate in relationship to the passage? What does the surrounding context tell us? What is the flow of thought? What is the writer's uh, logical uh, thought flow here? All of these things tell us what the writer's talking about. And sometimes people say things or write things in a way that doesn't translate as easily over into another language, and that adds another layer of complication. But when we organize the data, sometimes we're saying, well, does he mean this or does he mean that? Sometimes it can be more complex. There could be five options that are legitimate options depending on uh, word meanings or syntax or other things of that nature. So we have to go through this process of elimination. If it, it could mean A, B, C, or D. If it means A, what are the implications? How does that relate to other passages in Scripture? If it means B, what are, the, what are the implications? And how does that relate to other passages in Scripture? And so on. And you go through each of your options looking at them that way. Sometimes you look at a passage and you say, it really looks like this is saying X. 
But X, you know, contradicts very clear statements of Scripture in other places. For example, passages related to eternal security. Uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There you have a clear statement of eternal security. Jesus said that... Um, that he, the Father holds us in his hand, he holds us in his hand, we have a double grip on us from the Father and the Son, and nothing is more powerful than God. The use of the divine hand is often a metaphor in Scripture for power. Nothing is greater than the power of God, so nothing can break his grip on us once he has us in his hand. The the problem with sin is a, is a problem that is so debilitating that we can't do anything to solve it. We can't contribute one little thing in order to, uh, to affect our salvation. Jesus Christ had to do everything. Therefore, it was the power of God and the justice of God that solves the sin problem and changes us from being an unregenerate sinner under the condemnation of death to a regenerate, uh, righteous, by imputation of Christ's righteousness, justified a believer. We still have a sin nature, though. But it's that power of God. So theologically speaking, based on our clear statements of Scripture, we know that the believer cannot lose salvation because for someone to do something to lose salvation implies that he must have done something in order to gain it, something meritorious. But all the merit is in Jesus Christ. So therefore, when we look at some passages that seem to suggest a certain interpretation, but we have very clear statements in other places of Scripture that it's just the opposite, then we have to bring in this, this particular principle that when we've eliminated the impossible, in other words, it's impossible that this passage could indicate, could mean that we lose our salvation or that we could commit some sin after salvation that where, where there was no sacrifice for it. So when we have eliminated the impossible, whatever is left, that means we have to look elsewhere for meaning, that we have to dig a little more into our understanding of the context, words, all of those things, because uh, we didn't dig enough if we, if we come to a conclusion that this must suggest that there is a sin we can commit that wasn't covered by the sacrifice of Christ. Now, if you just think about that logically, that sort of, doesn't fit because God is omniscient. So there's nothing that's going to happen in human history that's outside the realm of his, his knowledge. He knows everything, everything that will be, everything that could be. He didn't just forget that you commit some sin. He knew it all. And therefore, when he imputes all to Jesus at the cross judicially, he didn't drop anything. Nothing got left out. And so there's, there's no sin that's committed in human history that is outside the knowledge of God and that wasn't paid for by Jesus on the cross. And that just is a fantastic reality because that indicates that this one sacrifice is complete, total. It takes care of everything. Nothing's left out. And we can just rest and relax and not even worry about sin again. And that's really what the writer of Hebrews is saying. When he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, what he is saying is sin isn't an issue anymore because the sacrifice was finished on the cross. So sin's just not a problem anymore. It was dealt with finally and totally at the cross. And because at the cross as we studied when we looked at those passages in Colossians 2, 12 to 14, because that certificate of debt that was against us was nailed to the cross. When did that occur? Last week? When you got saved? No, it happened in 33 A.D. when Jesus was on the cross. That's when the certificate of debt was nailed to the cross, when the sin was paid for. That's when it becomes a non-issue. So the issue isn't sin. The issue isn't something you've done, even though you're so guilty over it that it bothers you the rest of your life. The issue is the grace of God. And are you willing to accept the grace of God and relax in what he has given you? And it's just amazing, and we all have this happen to us at some time or another, that we have difficulty accepting free gifts. 
And some people have more difficulty with that than other people do, but people do at all times. One of my favorite stories that George Meisner has told many times uh, occurred when he was a seminary student. He and his wife, Sandy, were down in Houston, and he was doing his pastoral internship at Baraka Church, and part of what he was doing that summer, they were living with a pastor theme with Bob and Betty, and uh, Bob and Betty were going on vacation. Bobby was about maybe 12 or 13 years old, and they were headed off to, to uh, Arizona. And they were getting, had the car piled up, and they were off on the road trip. And just as Bob got in the car, he stopped and came back, and he said, you know, you're going to need some money to take care of some things. And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a wad of bills, hundreds. This was in about 1964, so, you know, a $100 bill just isn't worth what it used to be. And he peeled off about five or six of them and handed them to George, and George said, no, 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 I can't accept that. I can't take that, and, you know. Colonel looked at him with those gray eyes, just pierced him right to the soul, and said, "If you don't understand, if you can't accept a gift gracefully, you will never understand grace." And that is just such a great point that accepting a gift is as much of grace orientation as giving, and both are part of grace orienting, being gracious towards people and giving them, treating them in an undeserved manner, as well as receiving. And the other story I always like to tell with that, because they go together, was uh, not long, about probably 10 years later, Jim Myers was down, and he was over Baraka, and they were moving all the books out of the library to make room for other things, and they were giving these books away. And Jim Myers came in, and he was talking to Bob, and Bob said, well, we're just going to give rid of all those books in the library. And there were I remember that library, and I used to go in there and check books out when I was in high school. And uh, Jim went in there, and Bob said, go in there, take anything you want. And Jim went in there, and he got about a box worth of books. And he told me one day, he said, I just wasn't grace-oriented enough to take the whole thing. <laughs> See, we have to learn to receive as well as to give. And so people just have trouble accepting the fact that Jesus did it all. They just feel like they somehow have to help him, and that's just arrogance. I don't care how you sugarcoat it, what your circumstances are, what your background is, why it's difficult for you to accept something for someone else. It's just a matter of arrogance and pride rather than humility, and humility goes along with grace orientation. So when we study a passage like this one and we look at it and we say, it looks like this means something, but that something doesn't fit with these other passages or other doctrines. It can't mean that. So that's when we have eliminated the impossible, it's impossible that this talks about uh, losing salvation. Then whatever is left has to be the answer, no matter how improbable it may seem. And, and see, when we look at things in the English, we often come up with a problem. For example, when we look at uh, 1026, we read that first line, for if we sin willfully, and that really stands alone. I talked about that last time as a genitive absolute. That's not what I'm mentioning this time. Uh, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, and that phrase all it necessarily indicates a believer. We'll look at that a little more in a, in a few minutes. But in that last line, we read, the, there no longer remains. See that next word in English? It's that little word, A. In English, we call that an indefinite article. And it just it indicates here that the idea of there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin. That's the implication in English. The trouble is, in Greek, there's no such thing as an indefinite article. Sometimes we'll inadvertently say, referring to the article in Greek as the definite article, because there's no indefinite article, you can't say that Greek has a definite article either. It has an article. But when the article isn't there, it doesn't necessarily mean that the noun is indefinite or that you can translate it into English as a something or other. That's the mis same mistake the Jehovah's Witnesses make in John 1, 1, when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's no article with theos. And so they translate it, the Word was a God. See, because they don't understand Greek grammar, they go from God being an internally definite word to making it an indefinite, a God, and they come up with a totally different interpretation, making Jesus something less than genuine, true, 100% deity. 
So grammar is very important. So when you look at this and say, and, and the writer says there no longer remains sacrifice for sin, he, he leaves it indefinite because he's already nailed it down all through this chapter that Jesus Christ finishes that work. It is a pregnant sense of the anarthrous noun there that indicates the principle that there's nothing more to be done to deal with sin. It's all done. It is completed. So this statement is just as important as and just means just as much of a good thing as it did earlier. So anyhow, when we come to this passage and we see that verses 26 and following are just as much a part of 19 through 25 as they can be because uh, 26 starts with that little word for, meaning it's an explanation of the previous sections, previous sections 19 to 26, which in turn is a conclusion to 11 to 18. Well, in verse 19, we read, therefore, brethren. So he's talking to brethren. And brethren is a key word in here. There we go. There's a slide. Brethren is a key word indicating the second category that he's talking to them as a, as members of the family of God in a vertical sense, using it in terms of the spiritual sense of the family. So in last week I pointed this out, that brethren shows that he's talking to fellow believers members of the royal family of God. He's not talking using it in a horizontal sense in terms of talking to fellow Jews, but it's clear from all the ways in which he uses that that he's talking to them as believers. The second line of evidence is in verse 26, which says that... um, Let me get over to another slide, verse 26... after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Receiving the knowledge of the truth is something that only believers have. Only believers can receive the knowledge of the truth. Just look down a little bit to verse 32. Verse 32, the writer says, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated. Only believers are illuminated in the truth. So it's very clear in context. he, He can only be talking about believers. And so we see that if Hebrews 10, 32 to 36 cannot refer to unbelievers, and Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 cannot refer to unbelievers, then it's very clear that the same people are part of the subject in 26 to 31, and therefore he's talking to believers, and he's not talking to believers about losing salvation, but he's talking to believers about the fact that that something else might be lost, and it is a very serious thing to treat the grace of God after salvation in a light or licentious manner. Now, the key to really understanding this, and, and I'm, I want to—I re- know I'm re- repeating a lot of what I did la- said last time, but it's so important to get this down. In verse 18 and verse 26, you have two very similar statements in the Greek. They're very similar in the English as well. The only difference is a trade-out between two synonyms, offering and sacrifice, which are used synonymously throughout this chapter. And in 10.18 we read, Now, where there is remission of sin, remission of these, meaning remission of sin, that is forgiveness of sin, aphasis, that's the same word that's used in Colossians 1.17, Ephesians 1.7, that in him we have forgiveness of sin, the complete obliteration of any obligation for sin. There is no longer an offering for sin. That's a great thing. In verse 26, then, for if we sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's a great thing. Now, people want to make it say like, oh, well, you've committed this this willful sin, like the sin of the high hand in, in Leviticus chapter 15. And in, in the Old Testament, there were no sacrifices for the willful sin because they had that, that and it's explained in the context, because the person who commits the willful sin is, has been so arrogant towards the law that he just completely disregards it. But that has to do with the ritual system 
under the Mosaic law, and we're not under the Mosaic law. That's the whole point of this section in Hebrews. We're under the new covenant, and the new covenant completely covers and deals with all sin so that if you sin willfully, remember, sin's not the issue anymore because there's no more sacrifice for sin. Even if you sin willfully, it was taken care of at the cross. Does that mean you can just go out and sin licentiously? You can use 1 John 1, 9 as a license to sin and just confess your sin, uh, rebound or prebound. Let's just do it ahead of time. Let's, uh, I know what I'm going to do today. I'll just confess it this morning, and then I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, we laugh, but we've all wanted to do that at some time or another. And we know people who, who acted that way and just... And, and, and that's, as I've said many times, I think that's just characteristic of any immature person who hasn't quite learned responsibility yet. We all did that when we were kids. We took the freedom our parents gave us, and we used it in an inappropriate way. And we often found out why we weren't supposed to do that. So when we look at these statements... There's no longer an offering from sin. This is just the Greek, and this time I got the uh, transliteration in there. You can see that they both use the same phrase, uketi peri hamartias, uh, uketi peri hamartian, depending on the context, different, a little different ending, but prosphora, the, the word for offering, and thusia, the word for sacrifice, those are the are interchanged, and you have a stated verb in the in the second line. But they're ba- they're they're saying the same thing. So if it's a good thing in verse 18, it's an equally good thing in verse 26. So now, when we apply the Sherlock Holmes principle, we've eliminated the impossible, and whatever remains, even though it may seem looking at the English to be a little bit of a convoluted interpretation, it has to be the right meaning because every other possibility must be eliminated because it's impossible. And when we look at it this way, it clearly fits the context because from Hebrews 1 to the end of the book, he's challenging them not to bail out on their Christianity because it's going to have consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is exactly where he is headed in this particular uh, section and this particular argument. So let's go down and look at verse... uh, Verse 26, uh, 26 again. For if we sin willfully. Now that is in, in, in Greek a, my system for holding my mic on is continuing to fall apart. There, I think that fixed it. For if we sin willfully sets it apart as a grammatic, grammatically unrelated statement in the Greek, but it's designed to grab our attention. And the writer uses this, as I stated last time, writers use this, phrase, this, this uh, structure called the genitive absolute in order to state a principle that they're then going to negate or refute. And the way he refutes this idea of a willful sin He's going to refute that idea that there's uh, such thing as an unforgivable sin or a willful sin that there's no, uh, no, no coverage for. He states again that uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin because the once for all, the hapox sin, and he's going to use that word hapox again a couple of more times before the chapter's over with, it has completely dealt with the sin. However, that doesn't mean you're getting off scot-free and you can just sin to your heart's content without consequences. Verse 27 says, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. Uh Uh-oh, that's got to mean hell, doesn't it? Uh, Fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Well, if that's talking about us, we're going to be devoured by the flames. So that must mean that we lose our salvation and go to hell, right? Wrong. So we have to review, though, that there are the judgments. There are eight different judgments in, in Scripture. So whenever we see the word judgment like this, we have to say which kind of judgment, which judgment is being addressed. So first I'm going to put up a timeline from the cross. Then we have the resurrection and ascension. And when the Holy Spirit descends uh, 50 days after the crucifixion, the church age begins. The church age ends with the 
rapture of the church. All believers living and dead receive their resurrection bodies, meet the Lord in the air, and after that we have our first judgment, the Bema judgment, the Bema seat. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. You don't get there unless you have eternal life. You don't get there unless you're justified. You don't get there unless you're saved, phase one salvation. But a lot of the believers that end up there are going to be believers who did not do anything with their new life in Christ, who were disobedient and rebellious, and they're still going to face an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ for how they lived their uh, life, how they, uh, uh, how responsibly or irresponsibly they use the gifts and the and the information, the knowledge, the scripture that God gave them, the grace that God gave them. So, uh, the judgment seat of Christ is an evaluation. It's report card time, and we're all going to go through this report card time and get an evaluation of our. Uh, how well we did after we were saved, not for the purpose of where we're going to end up in eternity, but how we're going to, what role we're going to have, what responsibilities we're going to have in the coming kingdom. So this takes place during the time known as the Great Tribulation, the seven years that we have on the earth. This ends with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Uh, we, the church will return with him, and at, it is at that time that we have the next judgment. At that time, the, there are two things that happen at the same time. There is the, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet are sent to the lake of fire. And then there is a judgment of those believers who made it through the tribulation. This is called the sheep and the goat judgment. And the first judgment is for surviving Gentiles. The second judgment is of that is for surviving Jews. The uh, next judgment is Old Testament saints, and then the next judgment is tribulation saints. So that gives us five different judgments now. The first one's the bema seat for believers only, church age believers. Then the uh, second is uh, related to the judgments, uh, the uh, sheep and goat judgments of surviving Gentiles, surviving Jews, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints. Then the Antichrist and false prophet. And then there's the period of the millennial kingdom, which ends with the great white throne judgment, and all of the unsaved dead are judged at that point, and, and they are then sent to the lake of fire, and then Satan is sent to the lake of fire. So those are your eight judgments. Some people may say, what's well, nine judgments? Uh, Antichrist and false prophets should be uh, separated. Well, it doesn't matter. You don't get picky about numbers. But that's, that's the basic breakdown. You have these eight different judgments. So when we look at a phrase like um, uh, verse 27, a certain fearful expectation of judgment, we have to decide, is this going to be the Bema seat or is this going to be the great white throne judgment? And that's why it's important to understand that he's talking about believers. All through here, he's talking about believers. So therefore, it can't be the great white throne judgment because that's for unbelievers. So it has to be talking about a judgment for believers. So this takes us to the, to the Bema seat. All right, now. Let's go back and look at our key passages on the Bema Seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I want you to take a look at the context here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is just a, a, a tremendous chapter, a tremendous passage, the first part of it, and one that um, uh, I normally read and go through uh, at, a, at a funeral or memorial service. Verse 10 focuses us on that ultimate direction we go when we're before the Lord. But we see a key word there in verse 10, we. In verse 9, Paul says, uses we there, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing 
to him. Prior to that, he says we are confident. In verse 8 and verse 7, we walk. Um, verse 6 uh, or verse 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Uh, we go all the way back to the very first verse. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Who is he talking to? He's talking to believers. We, he's viewing us as believers. It can't apply to unbelievers because they don't have that destiny. He's talking only to believers, members of the royal family of God. And so it's clear as you go through this whole section that he is talking about the kind of attitude the believer should have and the believer's destiny. That right now we're well pleased. Uh, Right now, rather, we are at home in the body. We're absent from the Lord, but... We would rather be absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim or our goal, verse 9, whether present, that is, in phase 2, or absent, that is, in phase 3, to be well-pleasing to Him. That's not legalism. There are a lot of people who think that when you start going through the Scriptures and emphasizing the fact that Christians actually are supposed to do uh, many of these things have these virtues and behavior quali- uh, characteristics that we have in the Scriptures, that that's legalism. Legalism is when you think what you do uh, please, uh, pleases God in the sense of gains, gains points with Him, and you're trying to get His approbation and approval for blessing. But that's misplaces the point. We are obedient out of gratitude and because this is the right thing to do and that is how we, how we are to live when we are abiding in Christ and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 1, 9 means that when we, when we trip and we stub our toe, there's a recovery process. But it's not a license to stay out of fellowship and just do whatever we want to whenever we, whenever we feel like it. So when we come to... Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we have this summary statement that all of us, every believer, has to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and that each one is going to receive something for what's done in the body during phase two, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The word for good there indicates that which has uh, intrinsic value and that which is bad is that which doesn't. And so it has to do with divine good or human good, that which is produced in us through God the Holy Spirit and that which is produced in us through our sin nature. And the sin nature, remember, not only produces sin, but it also produces uh, morality, false morality, pseudo-morality, the morality, the good deeds of the Pharisees and religious people. So this is further clarified in the other key passage on the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 and following. Verse 10 says, According to the grace of God which is given to me like a wise master builder. This is the Apostle Paul talking. He's going to use this analogy of, of building something, of constructing something. It says, According to the grace of God given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on. Now that foundation is what he initially taught primarily the gospel, but also other basic elements of the, of the Christian life. I laid this foundation. Another is building on it. The other teachers came along and t- taught other portions of Scripture. But each man must be careful how he builds upon it. That is the construction of your own individual spiritual life. Verse 11, for no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So that indicates the gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 12, now if any man builds on the foundation, and then we have six different construction materials, gold, silver, precious stones, which are virtually indestructible, and they do not tarnish, wood, hay, and straw. These are destructible. Each man's work becomes evident. So it shows that the product of our lives is composed of different elements, different different quality of production. They're really divided into these two groups, either gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. 
And each man's work will become evident or literally will make, be made manifest. In other words, we can't evaluate it now. We just look at our lives and we think, well, some of it is, I know I'm in fellowship. Some it's, I'm out of fellowship. Some of it has eternal value. A lot of it doesn't. I really don't. I, there's no way I can tell. None of us can tell by looking at anybody else or even at ourselves what is divine good and what's human good. Only thing we can do is make sure we keep short accounts, make sure we're in fellowship, and do our best to study the word and to apply it. So each man's work will, though, in some time in the future, future tense, become evident for the day that is the, the day of judgment at the Bema seat will show it or reveal it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test, and this is the Greek word from the verb uh, dokimazo, which indicates to expose that which good. The purpose here isn't to expose sin or to expose that which has no value, because that's paid for by Christ on the cross, the sin is. It is to expose what is of value, but it's got to get rid of all the dross and all of the uh, wood, hay, and straw that camouflages it. So the fire will test or, or expose the quality of each man's worth. Notice the emphasis here is not on exposing and shaming you. The focus is on give an opportunity to expose what God has produced through you. However, there are going to be those that don't have anything, and therefore they will be embarrassed and there will be shame. So the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, uh, I skipped ahead. Okay, now if any man builds on the foundation, or where, where did I lose it? No, I was right, 15. If any man's work, which he's built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. So there's a gift of salvation. You don't work for a gift. It's given freely. But a reward is something that is deserved, something that is worked for, something that is in addition to that which is freely given. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. A reward. But if any man's work is burned up, that's the wood, hay, and straw, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet it's through fire. So it's not a loss of eternal life. It's not a loss of justification. It's not a loss of eternity in heaven. It is a loss, though, of rewards. There's a failure to receive rewards, and so the potential that we might get, the promise that is in addition to the gift, is lost. But we are saved yet as through fire, which indicates there is some residual negative consequence, even at the judgment seat of Christ, for failure, for failure to have used what God gave us. And that is the issue in terms of judgment. So when we are looking back at our passage in Hebrews chapter 10, and we read, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, there should be a, a, a fearful or terrible is another uh, way of translating this, a terrible expectation of judgment, that there, can, there will be an exposure there, an evaluation, and when that time comes, we don't want to be standing there with nothing to show for it, revealing that we wasted our time as believers, we lived for ourselves, walked by the flesh, and completely dishonored uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have this certain negative expectation out there that is to motivate us today. We're motivated by two things. Some people think, well, you know, that's just terrible that we're motivated by the fear of judgment. Like, it can't be terrible because that's what the Scripture says. It warns us that there is expectation because God knows that because of our sin nature, we would easily rationalize disobedience if we didn't know that there was some level of accountability in the future. So accountability is very much a part of God's plan for the believer because it is through living the Christian life and growing to maturity that we build the capacity and the maturity to be able to handle the roles and responsibilities God has for us in the, in the future kingdom. So we have this uh, terrible expectation of judgment. And then we have this next phrase, and this just seems to be so uh, difficult to understand for a lot of people. And the next phrase is, um, 
fiery indignation which will devour uh, the adversaries. Now, this is a quotation mark, I mean a quotation that is taken out of, uh, out of the Old Testament. Find the phrase. Here we go. A fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This is a quote that comes directly out of Isaiah 26, verse 11. Isaiah 26, 11. Just hold your place here in Hebrews 10, and let's turn back to Isaiah. Uh, Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible, and Isaiah is going to be to the right, four or five books. Isaiah chapter 26. Now, the context of Isaiah chapter 26 is that Isaiah is talking to believers. He's talking to the nation as a redeemed nation. We always have to remember that in terms of the analogy and comparison that's used, that what is going on in the life of the nation is analogous to what can go on in the life of the individual believer in the church age. The nation is eternally secure in their position before God by the Abrahamic covenant. They cannot lose that position position of blessing as a nation. That doesn't have to do with justification. It has to do with that position of blessing. But in the Mosaic Law, we have the conditional covenant that gives them uh, requirements for obedience, prohibitions, for dis- uh, things they're not supposed to do, that if they do and they're disobedient, there are consequences for that. So there are uh, positive mandates that they're to obey, and their prohibitions are things they are not to do. And when they obey, there are special blessings that God is going to give the nation. And when they disobey, God is going to uh, remove those blessings, and he is going to discipline them. And in Isaiah chapter 26, we have a song of salvation. Deliverance has occurred in the uh, broader context of these of these sections. And so in verse 1, we read, In this day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And this song that is recorded in this verse, in this book, is a, or in this chapter, rather, is called the Song of the Redeemed. The Song of the Redeemed. And uh, so it is views the nation as having been, what? Delivered, redeemed from the threat of the enemy. Now it goes on and talks about the uh, peace that they have, and it talks about... Uh, God's deliverance, but even in the midst of this, there is the there is the sour note of verses ten and eleven, that there are those within their midst who've been disobedient among the redeemed, and verse ten says, "Let grace be shown to the wicked," that is those among the redeemed who are disobedient, um, the the wicked who will not learn righteousness because he's disobedient in the land of uprightness he will. Uh, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Uh, Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for the envy of the people. Yes, and here's the line that's quoted, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. In other words, it is a statement simply of divine judgment on those who are disobedient. And so it is not a statement that relates to a literal fiery end in terms of the lake of fire. There is a fiery part of the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, when our human good is burned up and that is destroyed and then there will be shame and embarrassment for a time at the judgment seat of Christ. And that is how uh, this is connected and brought together. Now he's going to make it give an illustration of this, which is going to bring it into focus just a little better. And to do that, he's going to go back to the, uh, to the Old Testament and an Old Testament illustration. Let me see if I have a Maybe I did. Did I have a slide for the Yeah, I do. 1028. 1028 and 2029 20, give this illustration from the Old Testament and then applies, which is 28, and then applies it to us. He's going to say, if the Old Testament law recognizes that a violation of the law brings about punishment, then even more so... Under the new covenant, if the old covenant, which was temporary and inadequate, recognized disobedience led to punishment, 
then even more so under the new covenant, when the grace of God is treated lightly, there is even more certainty of discipline, divine discipline. So verse 28 reads, Anyone who's rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is clearly stated in uh, Deuteronomy in several different places, such as Deuteronomy 17, uh, 2 and 6, Deuteronomy 19, 15. These passages clearly state that someone who disobeys Moses' law under the, the con- conviction, under the testimony of two or three witnesses, that there is a punishment. There was the capital punishment that was to be imposed upon them on the basis of those two or three witnesses. Very simple statement that when the Mosaic law, the old covenant, was rejected, there was punishment. And then the point of comparison in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you suppose? I love the way he puts this in a question. Because they all understood the principle of verse 28. These are former Jewish priests. They knew the Old Testament law. He doesn't have to belabor the point. He says, okay, we all understand that there's this certain punishment within the law, the Old Covenant for, for disobedience. Now, don't you think that the New Covenant, which is even greater than the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, which is superior to the Old Covenant, don't you think that someone that that violation of a principle in the New Covenant is going to carry with it just as certain a punishment? But the way he expresses it is is very stark. It's very harsh, and it relates to the way in which a person is really thinking about the value of what Christ did on the cross. Because when we sin, even though we may not be consciously or conscientiously thinking about, well, we just, we're just fine that whatever Christ did for us and our salvation is really irrelevant, that's what's going on. When we put our focus off of doing what the Lord wants us to do and doing what we want us to do, what we are basically saying is, in, in our heart, is that it really doesn't matter that Jesus died for my sins and that I have a new life in Christ and he's given me all of these blessings, he's given me the Holy Spirit, I have all these wonderful things as a free gift because I'm just going to go do whatever I want to do because the thing that matters is I want to please myself. And so, in essence, what we are doing, and I lost part of that verse, didn't I? In essence, what we are doing is acting as if everything the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross is just of no consequence and no value. And so he puts it this way. Will someone be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? He's using metaphoric language here because what we're doing is treating that tremendous thing the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross as if it's just a common thing. It just has no value. We're just, we just treat it as if, it's, as if it's nothing. So we're trampling the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Now, there's a very clear statement there. He is clearly sanctified. That is positionally sanctified. That means he's saved. He's counting the blood of the covenant, which is the new covenant, by which he was sanctified a common thing. It's treating this wonderful, fantastic uh, provision for us that was secured by what Christ did on the cross and his unimaginable suffering on the cross for our sin and, and everything that we have because of that as if it's just an everyday common thing and we treat it so lightly and cavalierly that we just want to go ahead and do what we want to do. And in their case, what that means is that they are going to just uh, give up Christianity and go back under the old covenant. So what Paul is, I mean, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that the, the, by, by doing that, by committing this, any, any willful sin, there's still a consequence. Because when you commit that willful sin, it's as if you're saying that, it really doesn't matter what Jesus did for me. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. And that leads to judgment. And that's expressed in Hebrews 10, uh, 10, 30, and 31. 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his, his people. So in 1030, there are two different Old Testament statements that are referenced from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 to 36. Now, we think of vengeance as, person, as a personal vendetta. And you can hear that there in the in the Latin, which is where we get our word vengeance, that there's a there's a connection between vendetta and vengeance. But the idea of vengeance in both the Hebrew word and the Greek word that's that's used here is not necessarily that idea of personal uh, retribution that I'm going to get back at you that I'm you you hurt me so now I'm going to get back at you. The, the root idea in vengeance is that of bringing about justice because an injustice has taken place. And so what God is not saying, God isn't saying that I am a vindictive God. He is saying I am a righteous God who will judge and bring about justice and you need to leave it into my hands. But when you are willfully disobedient as a child of God, there's going to be discipline. This theme is picked up again in just a couple of more chapters when we get to uh, Hebrews 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, that is, family members? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. There is divine discipline both in time and there will be uh, consequences at the Bema seat for failure to uh, redeem the time, as the writer, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, 17, we need, or 16, we need to redeem the time and use it for the glory of God. So in uh, Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 32, we have the statement that vengeance is mine, I will repay. God is, everything will come to account at the judgment seat of Christ. And again, he says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, will judge his people. He is the judge, and there will be an evaluation. And then we have a conclusion in verse 31. This is the principle, and you can see a correlation to it in Deuteronomy 4.24, as well as Hebrews 12. Uh, 28. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is why the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord, because the fear of the Lord recognizes that there is accountability to God as the ruler and creator of all things, and that ultimately we are accountable to him how we use the time, the gifts, the abilities, the grace that he gives to us. And therefore, we will all appear before judgment seat of Christ. So even though there's no longer a sacrifice for sin because sin isn't the issue, there are still consequences for living a libertine life and a licentious life. And so none of this is a uh, a justification, a rationale for living in an arrogant, uh, self-absorbed manner. But indeed, it's even more of a warning to us because as believers, we do understand the terrible consequences of sin. As believers, we do understand what the long-term plan of God is, and therefore we are being challenged here not to take God's grace lightly, but to press on. That takes us right back to the exhortations in in verses 19 to 25 to draw near with the true true heart. have boldness, verse 19, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, and to consider, think about one another, to stimulate, to stir up love and good deeds. That is to characterize the body of Christ, not the opposite, which is sinful licentiousness. So next time we'll come back and finish out the chapter here in chapter 10 and verses uh, 32 down to 39, which sets us up then for the next section, which will be the last section of Hebrews. And we will start with that wonderful chapter, uh, chapter 11, dealing with all of the Old Testament saints and the example that they uh, have given us. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer.
Father, thank you for this time to study these things, to come to a clear understanding of these difficult passages, to be reminded that we are secure in your love, not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and he did it all. Nothing can be added to it. Sin isn't the issue anymore. The issue now is, for the believer, is utilization of all that you have freely given us in our spiritual life, that you have blessed us with every heavenly blessing, and that we are to press on uh, in our spiritual growth and spiritual life to glorify you in preparation for eternity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.